Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Today with us, we have a great guest at a great time. Dr. Kerry Karchner is, of course, a senior fellow at the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, but he's also a career State Department official who, over his long state career, negotiated arms control agreements with the Russians. He has written widely about arms control and is probably one of the most knowledgeable people in the country on the topic. And so it is with great pleasure that we bring Carrie Karchner to Nuclecast. Thanks for joining us, Carrie. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's it's great to have you. And the timing, you know, we had talked about you coming on earlier, but it's actually perfect timing because the Russians have given us so much to talk about. And and with that we have we you know we've had this recent suspension of participation in new start by the russians now and then of course i i just saw that the us will no longer share information with the russians i think that came out in the last few days so what do we make of the russian suspension and then the future of arms control okay i'd like to I'd like to address that, and but but let me come back to that after I make a few key points, and then we'll sure. start with we'll start with that. So I, there's just a few key points that I would I would stress, and one is that we the the era of U.S. Russian bilateral nuclear arms control is probably coming to an end. So I think this means. That when start new start expires in 2026, I, I don't see much prospect for anything following on that. The second point I would make is that the prospects for bringing the Russians back into compliance with new start are pretty dim, primarily because of Russian hostility, but also we lack the negotiating incentives to, to bring them back. The U.S. lacks the negotiating leverage to interest or incentivize the Russians to remain engaged in arms control. And I don't think the 2022 NPR did us any favors in that. In fact, I think the 2022 NPR actually took away some of the incentives that we need to bring the Russians back to arms control. So I, I think the 2022 NPR, let's just say this, it was based on some, I think, pretty optimistic assumptions about the U.S.-Russian relationship and the continuing constructive engagement in arms control, which I think now the post-Ukrainian realities are in, in conflict with that. The Russians and the U.S. have always had different approaches to arms control and different objectives, and I think the contrast in those objectives is now becoming glaringly apparent. 
bit. I think the last theme I would stress uh, is that in the event that we that we re-engage the Russians in arms control, the Russians are likely to reopen every agreed principle and concession that we've made throughout the history of arms control. Going right back to uh, what is a strategic weapon. So I actually see the Russians reopening all of those issues. And that was kind of forecast in, in President Putin's 21 February speech to the Duma. So let's talk about the, the, the suspension. So <clears throat> the, the suspension didn't happen overnight. It actually has been coming uh, for a while that the Russians had suspended inspections. We both mutually agreed to suspend inspections in 2020 because of the pandemic. But in 2022, we expected to reopen those. But the Russians in August of last year said they were suspending inspections. So that was a step towards the full inspection or full suspension. And then in Putin's 21 February speech, he announced that they were suspending. He said membership in the treaty. But I think that was either a mistranslation or or an overstatement because the Russian foreign ministry clarified they were suspending participation in the treaty. Right. And it wasn't clear at first what that meant, but it means because they said we are not, we are, we will continue to abide by the limits in the treaty. Right. And the deputy foreign minister of Russia also said that they would continue to abide by some other provisions of the treaty, although he didn't specify those. So, but I suspect that they will suspend exchanges of information, which were really critical. They've they've suspended uh, inspections, and I think an important aspect of this is that this kind of suspension is not provided for in the treaty. So I think that's why the U.S. considers this kind of a, an invalid suspension. Right. And and I wonder, one of the things that I've wondered is, so there was a an article in War on the Rocks uh, last week that talked about, it was a analysis of exchanges where the Russians attack U.S. ICBM fields and, you know, what would likely be left over. And because the whole premise was that they wanted to argue to alert ICBMs. And it, it you know, and I'm, I'm working on a response to it. And it got me thinking about the suspension of New START. And, and you know the Russians from having negotiated with them. And I, I thought that the the author assumed that the Russians would comply with new start numbers prior to a, a full-scale attack on the United States. And I, I sort of thought, man, you know, the Russians have the capability, you know, something if, for those who are in our audience that were at the Nuclear Deterrence Summit. We clearly understand that the Russians have the ability to upload rapidly, and we don't really have the capacity to match that. And so from your perspective as somebody who has worked with the Russians, do you see them as when they say, you know, we're not going to we're, we're not going to violate the treaty 
we will we'll not change numbers. Is that something we should assume to be true? Or should we assume that they will, in fact, begin efforts to, to violate the treaty? Or is this just a political move to try to back us out of Ukraine? So, of course, there's a political dimension to that. But an objective of Soviet arms control that has been carried forward into Russian arms control objectives is to maintain a first strike dominant position on their ICBMs. So the Russians have always favored ICBMs. They love Mervin ICBMs. And unfortunately, one of the concessions we gave away in New START was a ban on MIRVs. So we, we went to a completely um, freedom to mix. And of course, the, the Russians are going to use the freedom to mix their force structure to emphasize their ICBM force. And that gives them that first strike dominance. And, and so would you expect them to rapidly upload? Because, uh, you know, when we look at, when we do inspections, we don't see the actual RVs, you know, they're, they're covered and shrouded. Right. So we don't actually know how many RVs are on, on any one missile. So, you know, I wonder, can they, you know, cheat without us even really knowing it and which obviously they can, but, it, but it's a question of will they, and just from my, as I'm thinking back through the biological weapons convention, chemical weapons, uh, you know, open skies, INF, the Russians, they, and they do it, you know, I think in the Russian mind, they're doing it because they assume we are too. And so therefore it's sort of a justification for their, am I reading them right? I mean, you know them. What's, what is your reading on the Russians? So I think you are reading them right, but here's some further context for that. Um, the Russians have a, the, the Russians have substantial upload capacity. We, we also have very substantial upload capacity. The, the, the speed which with, with which we could take advantage of that upload capacity is, very, is problematic. And I also doubt the Russians could do that fairly rapidly. And I also believe that we would notice that they were doing that. Um, I had the opportunity to participate in several re-entry vehicle inspections mm -hmm. of Russian SS-18 ICBMs when they were carrying 10 warheads, which is, a, it is an incredible thing to see. Um, I also engaged in uh, re-entry vehicle inspections of SS-24 railmobile ICBMs, which were also um, MIRV, MIRVed and MIRV-capable. And the upload process requires bringing each missile back to a depot facility and then removing what well, it does, doesn't involve taking the missile back. It takes it, it involves a crew going out to the missile and, and a large crew taking the front section off of the missile right. and taking that front section back to a depot uh, facility, which could be one to 200 miles mm. away. 
and then the, the re-uploading would have to take place in that facility. So that process would be fairly current. So they would they would pull the bus off and then take the bus back on a tractor trailer, whatever. And we right. would we would see them because I would assume, you know, for a silo based missile, we would see them, you know, open open the blast door. We would see exactly. them bring the, you know, just like our trucks that, you know, come out and they, right. they sort of tip up over and then they pull it out. And so it's a similar exactly. process to, I'm sure they stole it from us, by the way. Yeah, so I, I got to watch that process play uh-huh. out and, and stand there watching the, the front section of the bus is being taken off and, and put on that truck and then accompany that truck back to the, to the, depot facility so yeah that that process would be fairly apparent also the transportation of warheads is actually fairly transparent too because they they're they're carried in special containers on special vehicles so yeah i I actually believe the russians do intend to stay within the limits and what makes you what makes you say that they are having problems bringing online new types and new new missiles. Their modernization effort is proceeding fairly gradually. And I just don't think they have the capacity between now and 2026, which is only three years away, to, to really uh, upload beyond the limits in the, in the tree. I think they're at their maximum capacity right now. But after 2026, they could ramp up. Now, one of the things that I've, I, I'm trying to think through both Russian and Chinese strategy. And one of the things I've thought from a, you know, about the Russians is, is that if I'm Russian, I'm trying to put myself in their per, position, I'm pretty much happy to have a small or to negotiate down the strategic nuclear weapons. Because if, if I can, have the Americans negotiate away their capability. That's really good for me because my fight is a, it's a theater fight. And, and so therefore what I'm really not willing to negotiate away are my theater nuclear weapons, because I don't, I don't really need to destroy continental United States to defend and maintain Russian territory. I just need to be able to provide that defense in depth that allows me to attrit a potential invader. And I can do that with theater nuclear weapons, both as I look west to NATO, and then if potentially, let's say we see a repeat of the early 1960s, where I have to worry about an aggressive China, I can use theater weapons in China as well. I don't need strategic nuclear weapons. So I think from a Russian perspective, negotiating down strategic nuclear weapons is actually beneficial to me because it reduces my costs. Uh, It's not the real fight that I want. uh, And it doesn't provide me the defense that is really most important to me. And am I sort of, and for the Chinese, I sort of think they have a similar, a similar issue where it would be theater nuclear weapons that they'd want not strategic ones. Am I, am I thinking right or wrong or? You're right about the Russians 
but maybe not about the Chinese. Okay. But let me go back to the to the Russian. You are absolutely correct, and I think that that is what a priority for the Russian under one condition, and that is that they maintain strict limits on U.S. missile defenses. And the Russians really hate U.S. missile defenses because they're worried those missile defenses could blunt uh, a first strike disarming strike by the, the Russians. And the, the, the Russian objective, and, and it's consistent with what you've uh, laid out, is to checkmate the U.S. from launching a nuclear first strike. The, the Russians want to do what they need to do in Europe, in Ukraine, and other, way, other ways without fear that the U.S. will retaliate with nuclear weapons. And the U.S. is more likely to retaliate with nuclear weapons if it has a robust missile defense capability. So the Russians will agree to deep reductions as long as the U.S. missile defense is kept at a very low level and some formal legal agreement that replaces the former ABM treaty is replaced. And um, the U.S., there's also a few other conditions I think that they're going to demand. And that is they include that we include the French and British forces in our number. Okay, so that they have equivalent numbers to the U.S., Russia, and France combined. <laughs> that, that has been a longstanding dream of Soviet and Russian arms control negotiators. And they want to redefine what, me, what it means to be strategic. They want to define strategic as any weapon that can hit their soil. So that would include Russian or, or that would include our non-strategic nuclear weapons that we've assigned to NATO. They would be counted as strategic weapons against our number. But their non-strategic tactical nuclear forces, which can't reach the territory of the United States, would not count. So that's ah, a very yeah, that's disadvantageous a- thing. So there's some complications to a straightforward reduction in strategic nuclear weapons. You know, it's funny that you say that because I have actually not thought about it that way before. So that's a really interesting point that you made. Now, I want to stay, I want to keep following on this, but we're at that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. So, of course, I'm Adam Lowther. We have Dr. Kerry Karchner, one of the most knowledgeable arms control experts in the country. And right now we're talking about the Russians. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Carrie, you just sort of blew my mind with this idea that 
that it's all about what can touch their soil versus what can touch our soil. And therefore they see all of our weapons as strategic and they see a lot of their weapons as, as non-strategic. I had honestly never thought about it that way, which it's, I, I see how the Russians could, could think that way. It makes, you know, from a Russian perspective, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. Um, so as, as you think through the future of arms control, and you, I mean, from a, you know, one of the things that I've, and and this is a conversation you and I've never had, but having sat in the State Department, I spent a few years working protocol for Sinkus Navier in London, and so I worked with the the State Department uh, in that capacity, and I always thought the Stadies were a very optimistic bunch but oftentimes they seem divorced from reality. And so as I look at the arms control community and have dealt with uh, arms controllers in State Department, there seems to be a desire for arms control for arms control in and of itself, as opposed to arms control for the sake of protecting American interests. As you think through arms control, uh, from your time in the State Department, do you see that everything that we've done has always furthered American interests, or do you think that there is, and not just in in the State Department, but just in the arms control community writ large, that there is a innate belief that arms control in and of itself is good, regardless of you know what it may be. That is a hallmark of the U.S. approach to, to arms control, that, that we could divorce the arms control process from the overall geostrategic situation and the state of our relationship between the U.S. and Russia, and that the other side would engage in a good faith effort to find common ground and to uh, engage with us in reducing reliance on nuclear weapons. And I've always thought those assumptions and that approach was a little bit naive. Um, also, I, I should say, I, I, I was not your typical State Department, <laughs> uh, your typical statey. First of all, I was civil service, so I was a professional strategic nuclear issues person. My PhD was in strategic nuclear. My dissertation was in strategic nuclear arms control. And I did not join the State Department. I was, uh, I was recruited into the arms control and disarmament agency. Uh, but then it was merged into the State Department. But in the, my view was that we needed to negotiate treaties that were in the interest of U.S. national security. I did find that many of my foreign service colleagues who were great people and, and extraordinary diplomats, but they were more interested in the number of agreements that we could make rather than what was in the agreements to make sure they were consistent with U.S. national security. So I often aggravated our delegation ambassador with arguments along those lines for any given proposal that we made. 
Yeah, I've as I've tried to think through arms control because I've, you know, I've I've spent most of my career with the services, and so I've thought about war fighting primarily. But in terms of thinking about arms control, I've you know I've thought that the main utility, and maybe this is just because I think from an American perspective, where you know I'm pretty confident that we can defeat any adversary. And so therefore, as I think about arms control, I think that the primary utility of it is that is the interaction between us and an adversary, the Russians, such that we have a better understanding of each other and how each other thinks, such that, you know, if you think about sort of a technical error that could occur and, you know, that because we know each other and we sort of understand how each other thinks in each other's interest, that we wouldn't assume that, you know, this technical error or when, you know, we've had uh, space launches that, you know, there was a, you know, somebody forgot to notify of the space launch and therefore there was an assumption, is this a, is this a strike as opposed to a space launch? You know, that because we've had these interactions, and we sort of know each other and we know how each other thinks and how each other would, would most likely fight. We can therefore say, ah, you know, hold your horses, you know, don't assume that this is a, you know, a uh, surprise attack. And that though that in and of itself is, is oftentimes the, the greatest utility of arms control, because I, I wonder, you know, as I think about like everything from the Washington Naval Treaty forward to me the best treaty we've ever made was inf because that was the one where we traded away the least and got the most and and so i I always like arms control when you're the weaker side that's really when arms control is good to get the other guy to trade away more am i am i sort of missing big chunks of what makes arms control good am i thinking about it the wrong way Okay, so your characterization is exactly consistent with the theory of arms control. So in theory, that is exactly the way it is supposed to work. In practice, it has been a little bit different. Okay. And in a couple of ways. In practice, the United States has used arms control negotiating fora to try to educate the Soviets and then the Russians in the, in the virtues of mutual assured destruction. Not to seek a convergence of views, but to educate the Russians. Um, and I'm sure that goes well, that, that, that the Americans are trying to teach our, our Russian counterparts how they yeah, need to think that, about stuff. <laughs> that never went well. Um, well, the Russians sometimes feigned, you know, understanding of mutual assured destruction and con- and con- consented to the idea that there would be some mutual vulnerability. But the Russians never bought into the mutual assured destruction uh, theory, and their arms control objectives bore out the fact that they were they were not seeking a mutual assured destruction. Um, <clears throat> so, in practice. Um, the Russians have sought 
to preserve advantages in certain capabilities, mainly ICBM ground-based or mobile mobile ground-based uh, and advantages in the throw weight allocated to those systems and advantages in the number of warheads those systems could carry. That has been a consistent Russian theme. I agree that the INF Treaty was one of the most remarkable arms control uh, ag agreements ever reached, partly because, as you said, we, we got so much and, 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 and gave so little. There's a couple of reasons why the INF Treaty turned out that way, and one was Gorbachev was anxious to bring the arms race to an end for the for the sake of economic solvency. Right. And so we had that going for us. But the, the, the Soviets also had a great fear of SDI and the U.S. Missile Defense Program. And I think that actually gave us enormous leverage in both INF and the First START Treaty. This, the First START Treaty, like the INF Treaty, we got way more in the first START treaty than our negotiating leverage would have indicated. We got way more. And I think that the two reasons for that are that Gorbachev's uh, desire to bring the arms race to a close and to put the U.S. and Russian relation on a, a, a the U.S. and Soviet relation on a different footing but also because of our enormous uh, the leverage that we gained just from having a program to develop SDI. Just the threat of developing SDI was an enormous source of leverage. So as you look to the future, and you, you've already said that you don't think there, there will be future bilateral and that new start will be, you know, it'll end. And, and, you know, we we're so we're, We've got about a minute left in the show, so we don't really have a time to go through a, a broad discussion of China, which we're going to we'll do this at a second show. I didn't, I, we haven't talked about this, but it's clear we need a second show. So do you think as you think about the Russians and you put yourself in their perspectives, how are they thinking about arms control, you know, new start, future arms control? their relative position in the world what what is the russian you know vladimir putin or the russian elite what are they thinking right now they are thinking that they would like to let new start play out uh, and and expire and then if there's any desire to re-engage in arms control they want to use that as a platform to reopen all the the previous agreements and revisit issues that we thought had long been settled. So what is strategic? What should be included in that? How do we treat MIRVs? Um, how can we put a cap on U.S. missile defenses? How do we preserve that dominance of offense versus defense? Um, how do we limit inspections? How do we limit transparency? How do we limit telemetry exchanges? All of those things, on-site inspections, I, I'm not sure they'll ever revive those. The, Rus the Russians don't care for on-site inspections. Um, so all of those things would have to be revisited in a future arms control negotiation. And the success of such a negotiation will depend on how much leverage the U.S. brings. And leverage will require building up 
our strategic forces. And this administration is not inclined to do that. Well, well, we're out of time, unfortunately. And, and as we talked before the show, I said, that's ah, going to go by quick, but it's gone by really quick because there's so much to continue to talk about. But unfortunately, we will save that for a second show. Kerry Karshner, thanks for joining us on Nuclecast. You're welcome. And thanks to you, the listeners. And of course, we are definitely going to have Kerry for a second show and we'll talk China. So be sure to look forward to that. Well, so afterthoughts, Harry Karchner, great interview. I, I've never been all that interested in arms control, just, you know, my own personal interests, but that was really interesting. It really, and it's a prescient time right now to think about it. And Carrie did a great job and I just, I'm sort of much more interested in arms control now. So uh, that was that was great to hear from Kerry Karchner. And I wish we had had time to discuss sort of what he sees as the realm of possible between, you know, trilateral arms control. Is that possible with the Chinese? Um, you know, they like to do bilateral things because it always gives them leverage to their, you know, their negotiating partner. So therefore, would they do trilateral? I'm, I'm that that's all the things we didn't get to discuss. So maybe on the next episode, that's that's where we'll we'll be able to go. But I, you know, man, I'm hopped up. That was a good episode. I enjoyed it. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.